NPR. I'm Damon Grimm. And I'm Becca Siegel. Welcome back to Justice Tomorrow, because today is almost over. Gets me every time. <laughs> a battle that's been going on for decades wages on in the United States courts, where just a few days ago, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stint elected to commute the sentence of 41-year-old Julius Jones just hours before his scheduled execution. Now, Becca, this is far from the first time someone's executed. Execution has been stopped immediately before it was set to be carried out. In fact, Jones' case is just another controversy in the decades-old debate over capital punishment. Exactly, Damon. I mean, these kinds of last-minute saves are exactly why we want to talk about and focus on the fight against capital punishment in today's episode. Over the course of today's episode, we'll be bringing you four experts to cover a diverse range of issues and try to break down this complicated debate. Over 1,539 people have been executed by the state since the 70s, and we've got a lot of history and a lot to cover. Now, I know there's definitely multiple points of view and a ton of information on this topic, but I definitely think it's important we start with where our bias lies when we're talking about this. Oh yeah, absolutely. And just to be candid with all of our listeners, here on Justice Tomorrow, we've decided um, that there's no way to talk about justice without yeah. moving intentionally towards the abolition of the death penalty, which we know is controversial. You know, we're not we're not here to make friends. We're here to talk about an issue yeah. that we think is really important. Um, so the experts that we're going to be talking to today are all at the forefront of the fight against the death penalty. And I mean, they're just great. They know what they're talking about. And yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. I think we have some good guests who really know about a lot about this topic. And I mean, they know more than I do, which I don't say that very often. You know that about me, Becca. <laughs> That's but. true. That's why you aren't our expert, Damon. I'm not an expert either. Uh, after this quick break, we're going to be speaking with Ophelia Zhu, a history professor at the University of Chicago, who currently studies the changes in U.S. capital punishment. Uh, she also directly represents juveniles inside the courtroom. We're really excited to talk to her. Stay with us. Welcome back. I, I enjoyed that break. You have a good break? I had a great break, yep. Okay. Yep. For those of you just joining us, uh, we're tackling capital punishment today with a panel of experts who oppose the death penalty. Our first guest on our show today is Ophelia Zhu. Um, we've introduced her before, but um, to remind you guys, she's a renowned history professor at University of Chicago. One of the best. I think she is one of the best. And she also has a lot of experience working with juveniles, so she's definitely worked with the death penalty, defended people in death penalty. Um, so I'm excited to see what she has to say. Um, Ophelia, thank you so much for being here today. Of course, I'm happy to be here. You know, Ophelia, he's never introduced me that nicely before. So <laughs> no, no, should, no, this is just Becca. Uh, but, you know, before we kind of get into the depths of, like, the court history, I was wondering if you could just go ahead and, and explain the, the situation right now uh, regarding the death penalty, both in the United States and around the world. What are we looking at? Of course. Internationally, the death penalty is viewed as a human rights violation, and 54 countries allow capital punishment, and 107 countries abolish it completely. 27 countries are still working on the trend of abolishing that. Some countries in the Middle East and Southeast Asia did not really follow this trend of abolishing capital punishment, and the support for abolishing the death penalty is primarily isolated to the Western countries. So if it's viewed as a human rights violation, it's these, these countries are basically breaking international law and international morale, I mean, moral code every day is that the right is that the right wording moral standards yeah moral, moral standards yeah well that's not what i'm saying but 
we know that um, our country, different countries are founded yeah. on different principles. So maybe their ideology, for example, like a lot of the socialist countries and communist mm-hmm. countries, they do have different perspective than we do regarding death penalty and human rights. And I will not make blatant blanket judgments. Or, yeah. yeah. Well, you I mean, not, I think but, it's, but we will. That's yeah, what we do. Yeah, that's show, what we so. do. <laughs> that's that's our job. But I, I think it's a little bit interesting because you kind of start to see the divide regionally, you know, and how. Um, I mean, I noticed this. Of you see the U.S. and their allies, especially when we're talking about most of the international organizations. It's usually power. The powerhouses are the U.S. and its allies, and um, all of them are pushing against it. So it's kind of interesting. The United States is a bit behind, but I mean. Um, I know you're here today today to talk a little bit about how the U.S. has evolved over the years. So if you want to maybe touch on that since um, in the last few years and how it's evolved. Yeah, so historically the U.S. Constitution allowed the use of capital punishments like gas chamber, electric chair, and fire and squat, which seems cruel and unusual for a lot of us today. But it still exists, right? Yes. Um, for some of the exists, they still exist like for example for electric chair nine states still allows that and four states still allow death by firing squad so we can see these kind of capital punishments here and there but for the main trend we're moving definitely away from that okay okay so just to make sure that i understand things completely you're saying that the limitation of like these less humane methods is proof that we're moving away that we're just saying like there's not really any good way to kill people um, it's just kind of like a slow process. Does that sound right? Okay, gotcha. Okay, um, and I, I, I know I hate to get into this, listeners. You might, you might get a little bit bored here, but this is where we're going to talk about the Supreme Court. Yeah. So and, if you guys want to come back in yeah, like yeah. five minutes, we'll, we'll <laughs> but be um, I, it's important to touch on. I think because um, I know that this is kind of your specialty, and I don't know it as well as you do. So I'm, I'm just going to ask about how how have the cases evolved? I know. I mean, we all know pretty much about like some of the more major, like Roper v. Simmons, we all know that. But um, like, how has the more minor cases led to and shown this evolution? So I'm first gonna give a quick summary about how the Supreme Court cases evolved and led to what, like where we are mm-hmm. today. And if you have any further questions, you can just interrupt me okay. at any time. I will. <laughs> so first, in Thomas versus Oklahoma, the court found the minimum age to receive the death penalty execution to be 16. And within two years, the court decided that the minimum age should be 17 in its opinion to Stanford versus Kentucky. And furthermore, it evolved to its most noticeable change in Roper versus Simons in 2004, which completely overturned the use of death penalty for any minor. So it has like shown that it evolved. Yeah. I think our, um, one of our guests later on in the show is actually going to talk about that, you know, that mental um, shift, you know, realizing that the brain takes a long time to develop. So I think those, those court cases are really interesting that they've been laid out like that. Yeah, and interesting research uh, from one of my colleagues in University of Northwestern Seda that juvenile brains doesn't stop develop until the age of 25. So that's definitely a factor to consider. She's gone her ear. We have a different guest, but I mean, she's welcome to come back. If you want to drop her phone number, actually. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about this. But for now, um, I really want to thank you for being here, um, offering some insight. Um, And before you head out, uh, sorry to cut you off there, Damon, but we do have the one question that we kind of ask our guests. Um, you know, given your expertise in your area and your historical know-how, 
what's something that you think we should look for in the future? What's our next step? How are we going to obtain justice tomorrow? Well, I definitely think that there are multiple perspectives on this topic, and I do not think I am experienced enough to give you a complete summary of how and where we should go for capital punishment in the future. But I think our very first step is definitely to abolish the death penalty because it is it is always bad for us to take one innocent life and death penalty cannot avoid the occurrence of situations like this. So preach in the choir. <laughs> you you found your audience. Absolutely. Yeah, well, um, I would really like to thank you for being here. Uh, you definitely offered us a bunch of insight. Um, we're definitely going to need you back sometime. So we're excited, and we have a lot of other good guests that we're going to get to. But, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. And um, next we're going to be talking to another one of our guests. So we're, let, let's just take a quick break, and then we'll introduce um, her. I'm really excited to delve into our next topic because I think it's something we oftentimes forget to consider. Oh, at least I sometimes forget to consider. I mean, especially as we're both white, I think it's hard to really consider the firsthand implications of race in sentencing and in the death penalty in general. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important to think more about those topics that we don't really um, develop in general. But our next guest, luckily, is really knowledgeable in this topic and is going to offer us some great additional insight. We're lucky enough to be joined by Deirdre Keenan, who currently serves as the director of the ACLU Capital Punishment Project and as a defense attorney on behalf of incarcerated people on death row in the southern United States. Deirdre, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Of course, we're really excited you're here. Um, I'll ask the first question. I'm very excited to get into it, but (laughs) as director of the ACLU uh, Capital Punishment Project, how have you determined that the application of the death penalty is racially discriminatory? Well, first off, I would like to thank you for having me on this podcast. I'm really excited to be here. Um, Conversations about the intersection of race and capital punishment are critically important, especially when it comes to making public policy and combating systemic racism within institutions such as the criminal justice system. Um, I'd also like to preface this by saying that the ACLU Capital Punishment Project supports and promotes the abolition of the death penalty, as we believe it is racist in its application and is also in direct violation of the Eighth Amendment's Cruel and Unusual Punishment Clause. We're with you there. Don't worry about that. So that's the lens through which I'll be examining the death penalty today. Um, as for your question, the death penalty has been racist since its very inception. Established in America during colonial times, it is deeply intertwined with slavery and the Jim Crow era. Through my work as director of the ACLU Capital Punishment Project, it's been incredibly clear how the death penalty sentencing disproportionately targets people of color, particularly black people. Uh, For example, since 1976, 43% of state-sanctioned executions have been people of color, and 55% of those currently on death row are people of color, according to the ACLU. And that's kind of important because they're not actually proportionally that amount of the population, right? Yeah, exactly. I think it's about 14%, correct me if I'm wrong, but that seems incredibly disproportionate. Yeah, exactly. It's incredibly disproportionate. So, as you can see, these racial disparities in capital punishment sentencing are so disproportionate that a study done by statistics professor George Woodworth found that from 1983 to 1993, so that's a span of 10 years, the likelihood of a jury settling on a death penalty sentence increased by 38% when the defendant was black. Wow, I mean, that was a lot of great information. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Um, Just delve into it a little bit deeper. 
Yeah, of course. Uh, whether it's the codified exclusion of black Americans on juries, skewed demographics of juries, or confirmation bias from jurors, black Americans regularly receive harsher punishments from the criminal justice system. And this isn't just in the death penalty, right? It's all overall in the entire justice system. Yeah, it encompasses um, pretty much everything within the criminal justice system. So let me put this into perspective. While white victims account for 50% of murder victims, 80% of capital punishment cases involve white victims, according to to the ACLU. So if you look at these statistics, it becomes very clear that juries are disproportionately more likely to sentence a defendant if the victim is white. Wait, wait, so you're telling me that these juries that are already really white are more likely to care if the person who died is also white? Yeah, exactly. Makes sense to me. (laughs) Sounds pretty racist. (laughs) So, in fact, as of 2002, only 12 murder cases uh, in which the death penalty, in which the defendant was white and the victim was black, have resulted in the defendant being sentenced to the death penalty. Um, on the other hand, 178 black defendants have been sentenced to death for the murder of white victims. As an attorney, the overwhelming amount of people that I have represented were people of color. Um, and re- is it hard with when you're making these like defenses for these people? It's probably a lot of. Um, you probably have people who kind of accuse and use race involved in it, right? Like that, um, trying to convince juries basically of doing the whole like um, the black person is the bad guy type of role. Is that kind of portrayed a lot? Yes, exactly. Racial bias is incredibly integrated into these uh, juries and into these cases. Um, and the reality is that of how the death penalty is applied according to race, it becomes very stark when you walk into a courtroom. I don't know if you all have walked into a courtroom before, um, but it's... We're it's, a little bit more comfortable behind the microphone. <laughs> but it, it's, per, it's primarily people of color, and that's a lot to do with the systemic racism within the system. Um, and considering that at least 4% of people on death row are innocent, and that 55% of people on death row are people of color, it's pretty reasonable to conclude that wrongful sentencing and executions disproportionately harm people of color. Can you just say that one more time? What percent of people are innocent? So at least 4% of people on death row are innocent. Wow. And 55% of people on death row. And those are just the ones they found, right? Not even considering there could be more, or is that? Yes, it could definitely be more, and it quite possibly is more. Um, And 55% of those people on death row are people of color. So you can conclude that a lot of people of color on death row are innocent, and so there's a lot of wrongful sentencing in place. Wow. Okay, so I'm still kind of, I want to go back to the point about the juries and about what those kind of look like. Um, So considering that a disproportionate amount of people of color are sentenced to the death penalty, as we've talked about, um, I want to take a look at those juries that decide these sentences. Um, How does racial biases within the juries play a role when determining these sentences, especially like in your own experience looking at them? So that's an excellent question. Um, What many researchers and legal experts have found is that racial biases in juries and the sentences that they determine in capital trials are inextricably linked. Um, I think that in order to answer this question, we really have to take a look back at the 1986 landmark Supreme Court case of Batson v. Kentucky. So here, the court decided that jurors could not be eliminated from jury pools by prosecutors based on race. That makes sense to me. Seems, Seems like a pretty straightforward idea. You think. However, despite this judicial precedent set, racial discrimination in jury selection has continued to persist throughout the decades. There's nothing that how there's nothing you can really do to stop it, right? Is that kind of the issue of 
until that racial bias is kind of eliminated. There's nothing you can do to stop people's racial bias from showing through on the jury or is, um, how does that kind of work? Well, yeah, that's one of the core flaws within our judicial system. It's that you cannot eliminate this racial discrimination um, in jury selection because people will always have those individual race, racial biases um, until uh, systemic and very progressive, um, you know, progress is made um, in regards to that. So from 1983 to 1993, um, Philadelphia prosecutors removed 52% of eligible black jurors um, on the other hand, they only removed 23% of other eligible jurors. So as you can see, the demographics of juries often tend to be overwhelmingly white, um, as we see with the Ahmad Arbery case. Um, so the racial bias of these jurors results in more black defendants receiving the death penalty. And this is, a, this is a prime example of how racism is embedded within every aspect of the criminal justice system, from jury selection all the way to death penalty sentencing. Well, I won't lie, Deirdre, you know, you've, you've laid out kind of beautifully here a really strong, um, convincing reason, you know, why we should abolish the death penalty, but, you know, that doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon. So as you know, our, our podcast is all about justice tomorrow, so we always like to make a point of asking our experts who come in and bring all this heavy, dense information, what that tomorrow should look like, like what is the course of action that you see, what policy solution do you advocate for as an expert in your field? Give us some hope, Deirdre. We need a little bit. <laughs> well, I, I definitely or do tomorrow. think that there is hope. Um, as someone that has been involved in movement work for decades um, related to criminal justice, I really do believe that the only just policy solution, solution is abolition of the death penalty. Um, it's, it's incredibly clear that the, that the death penalty has its origins in white supremacy, and state-sanctioned executions are a lasting legacy of Jim Crow. And that goes all the way to segregation and until now. Um, it constitutes cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment and is thus in violation of that. Um, and for all these reasons, I truly do believe that the abolition of capital punishment is a necessary step towards creating a more just and equitable society. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that makes perfect sense to me. I'm sure Becca I'm agrees. convinced. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, we really thank you for being here. Yeah, of course. And just a quote that I'd like to leave you all with. Uh, it's by Audre Lorde, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And I think that's a really good perspective to look at death penalty abolition through. There's obviously so much to unpack, but I mean, I kind of, I really want to start on the idea of like, if you really can't change it, you have to end it. That's kind of what we, we talk about that a lot in a lot of these justice issues. And it's, it's the idea of like, there's only really so many laws you can put in place, only so many things you can do. Um, to prevent these biases from showing through, but the reality is they are showing through, and it's it's definitely people's lives we're talking about, and I think that's kind of the cornerstone of our whole argument because that's what we're focusing on. Yeah, no, 100%, and, and, you know, she was talking about the Supreme Court cases that have already happened. You know, yeah. it's not like no one's trying. People are trying to make things less racist, um, but things just, just aren't changing, and I'm, I mean, I'm really stuck on that 4% number, that 4% of innocence, um, and how that's, again, going to disproportionately impact people of color. It sounds like that the state is, m you know, murdering, killing more people of color in, like, a sanctioned way. Yeah. And that, to me, just feels incredulous. And I really hope that, you know, the rest of the experts that we're talking to later on in the show can kind of elaborate more. Because, you know, we're here sitting in the studio having this conversation, and I'm convinced. You know, I'm ready to eradicate the death penalty. But I mean, that I mean was but I think the issue is there for so many people there is an argument behind it. You know, it is right. the whole eye for an eye thing. It's about getting back. But sometimes I think the issue is like 
justice itself is so important, but it's it's kind of the idea that like um, sometimes people take it too far, and sometimes like that idea of equal justice, that eye for an eye mentality, doesn't always work because it's always an eye for an eye until you take a little too much, and that's that's what we see is this innocence and. Um, it kind of comes back is like you you put a few innocent people to death and that's just a few too many and i i mean that's what deirdre talked to us about today and she talked about specifically with like racial disparities and that but um yeah i'm excited i'm excited for the rest of the guests and the ones we've had so far i think they they're they complement each other and we're starting to see a theme um yeah i think the last thing that i want to say just with your your eye to an eye analogy is it doesn't even sound like an eye for an eye you know it's like an eye for a nose at this point if we're killing the wrong people because the system is is just so racist but uh you're right i think i think deirdre gave us a lot to think about um and just you know being cognizant of the time we're probably gonna wrap up this portion get ready to move to our next guest stick with us uh we've got some really great guests coming up um and we'll be, we'll be back in just a little bit well potty break potty break Okay, I am excited to introduce my first ever British guest, um, <laughs> Dr. Crystal Lang, um, a neuroscientist here at UNC Hospital. Um, she conducts studies that test brain development, especially in minors um, and the developing brain. So this is going to be a little bit outside my comfort zone talking about anything to do with the brain. So we're going we're gonna to try to get through this together, Becca. We'll be brave. We'll be brave. Uh, and she is at UNC Hospital. And fun fact, Damon and I actually met at UNC Chapel Hill, so we got a little bit of alumnus pride yeah. going on right I now. I mean, that's, I think, how we got her. But um, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Lang. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here today. We're not doctors, so be, be patient with us. <laughs> um, so again, like, let's go ahead and get some groundwork going on. What about your research is the most important to understand when looking through the lens of the current implementation of the death penalty? So through my research, I've come to the conclusion that two key neurological processes occur during adolescence and well into adulthood. These processes, pruning and myelination, involve enhancing decision-making, emotional maturity and risk analysis. Pruning and myelination of the brain can take decades to completely occur, depending on the individual. So the brain is not necessarily fully developed at a specific age. In terms of the death penalty, I believe it could be argued that you can't humanely put anyone to death when you are just assuming that they have a fully developed brain. You can't just say, oh, this person turned 18 years of age, or this person turned 21, so therefore they are fully culpable. I understood about half that. And I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a little, I'm gonna be honest, I'm a little scared to ask this next question. <laughs> What specific study or studies led you to this information? You're a brave man, You're a brave, brave man. I was visiting the laboratory for neuroimaging at UCLA and partnered with them to analyze 10 adolescents from 12 to 16 years old and 10 fully grown adults from 23 to 30 years of age. We found that reduction of gray matter in the MRIs took place for both of these groups, even though other aspects of the older subject's psyche were developed. Pruning is actually what causes the reduction of gray matter in an MRI. So therefore, even an adult who is 30 years of age doesn't necessarily have a fully developed brain because the development here is still occurring, which is 
clearly shown from scientific research. So basically what you're saying is there's just no universal timeline. There's Absolutely. no there's no way. So it's it's kind of when we're making these laws, we keep extending the age, but the reality is for everyone it's different, right? No hard and fast stop. So just because, for example, Damon is over 18, I don't have to expect him to be uh, fully matured, fully developed. It's not there yet. No, <laughs> I, I think uh, a, a lot of our listeners definitely think of 18 as the hard and fast stop. So what do you think is important for them um, to understand? It is important to recognize that juveniles can no longer be sentenced to death because they were obviously deemed not fully culpable. But the brain of an adult still goes through significant development in a similar sense to the brain of the adolescent. So they're basically, the, the whole idea of it is, in your, in your studies, it's just, there is just really no evidence that there is a good age, right? Absolutely. Right, yeah, well, I know quite a few immature people my age. Thank okay, so yeah, much. okay. Well, thank, thank you for so being much. here, Dr. <laughs> Lang. You just built... Becca's confidence a little too high, but nonetheless, I do appreciate you being here. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yes. Uh, and next guest, I'm I'm very excited for this one because police officer in Chapel Hill, we may or may not have had run-ins together, but that's all. That's why we're going to leave it at. Officer Smith, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Of course, it's great to be here. Would you mind taking a second to explain to our listeners what deterrence and retribution of crimes is. Yeah, so deterrence has to do with making sure a particular crime doesn't continue to happen. So like officers like myself, we always try to deter crime by increasing the perception that criminals will be caught and brought to justice. Um, On the other hand, retribution has to do with specific punishments for criminals, um, like compensation for victims, um, like a jail sentence and that type of thing. Yeah, so it sounds like uh, the threat of being put to death would be a pretty significant way to deter people. Uh, Have you seen that in your work? Are people deterred by the threat of the death penalty? Um, Actually, no. There aren't lower rates of crime or even like lower rates of murder um, in states that have the death penalty versus the ones that don't. I just think it's really important to understand that most people who commit capital offenses do so in the heat of the moment. Mm -hmm. And as an officer, we see a lot of drugs and alcohol involved in such things and mental illness, um, which are persistent issues in society, and they're not going to be solved with the death penalty. And you're going to see it. I mean, you work at UNC. I mean, yeah, like you see a lot of college kids, a lot of stupid mistakes, right? They're mistakes that aren't going to go against people's records, right? A lot. Well, (laughs) (laughs) this is not the spot to expunge your record. Okay, well, (laughs) as I was saying, I just, uh, you know that it's, with students, they're not always in the same mindset. We talked with one of our previous guests about the lack of brain development, but you know that. You don't even need brain scans to see that, right? Yeah, you just need eyes. Yeah, maybe ears, maybe uh, maybe maybe something. But um, Maybe some time working on a podcast. But it's been uh, great to have you here. We just we just wanted a little glimpse into your life as a police officer and what you saw. Um, so, Officer Smith, before we let you go, you know, you're on the ground, you're doing this work. What is justice tomorrow? What does that look like? What needs to change? Well, we definitely need to prioritize funding rehabilitation centers, mental health treatment, anti-poverty initiatives, and other social programs that will effectively deter crime. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. Fair enough. <laughs> All right, well, you two say your tearful goodbyes. Hopefully you won't be having any more run-ins with the law, Damon. I do need you as my co-host. <laughs> I'll Officer be watching. <laughs> oh, yeah. Always watching. Officer Smith, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you for being here.
Well, welcome back. Um, final time together for this today. A little sad. Crying. Nah. Act- actively shedding a tear. But I'm going to lead us into our last little discussion about this. Obviously, we're called Justice Tomorrow because today is almost over. But the idea of it is, what are we going to do about this tomorrow? What what would it look like for us after hearing this? And, like, well, why specifically? I mean, we're going to have a little Damon pessimism of the day. But, I mean, Classic. how many things in this country are racist and don't get fixed? Or get fixed with little bandages that really are not fixing any problem? That's I think my biggest worry is, like, you know, whether it's racist or wrong or immoral, it doesn't matter because a lot of times we do nothing to fix it. Because, I mean, with an issue like this, it's like when it's kind of ingrained in the society and it's been there for so long, there's really not a lot of ways to fix it. And that's, that's what worries me. And I, I'm hopeful. I think that the conversation's moving in the right direction, like you said. But, I mean, I think tomorrow isn't where it's going to happen. I think it's the next day or the day after that. We're moving there, but it's... We're still a few days away. <laughs> We're a little bit away. Right. And I think this is why we work so well together, because here comes a little bit of my optimism. Um, it's already but, there. Yeah. It's been there. <laughs> what, what Professor Zhu said earlier in the episode about how it's been you know, increasingly limited over the past couple of decades, both domestically and internationally, just makes me think like that action is not only happening today, mm-hmm. it's happening yesterday. Yeah. You know? So my journey, my expectation is that it's an ongoing fight. Um, and I'm going to remain hopeful, and I think we all should. Let's hear. Know. Let's just hear a Becca quote of the day. Let's hear it. I need to hear it. Don't worry. I actually do have one prepared. I know you do. So you this is from uh, <laughs> Brian Stevenson, author of Just Mercy, and it reads, The death penalty is not about whether people deserve to die for the crimes they commit. The real question of capital punishment in this country is, do we deserve to kill? Mm-hmm.